the reality of entrepreneurship too is when you're first starting, you are doing everything. And it's like, I feel in a lot of ways, like my life today, Maria, is so easy because I have people doing all the things I hate to do now. Welcome to the Tip the Skills podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of Lawrence. Today, I have a super special guest that finally agreed on doing this with me. He turned me down initially, James Helm, but we're going to call him Top Dog. We talked about social media. Obviously, that's what he's known for, manifestation, cold plunges, all sorts of things. I hope you guys enjoy this. This is a special one. Top Dog. We're doing this. We're doing this. Can I call you that, Top Dog? Please do. Yeah, I don't like James. Okay. Top, is- top Dog it is. Yes. I want everyone, I, I assume everybody knows who you are. If they don't, they need to go and type it in in Instagram, top dog. But I want to paint the picture of like who you are as a person. So I'm going to tell a story. So I had been following top dog. We'd never met, never chatted, nothing. And I just sent him a message one day and I was like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? Now, a lot of people tell me to go fuck myself or don't respond or, you know, give me the runaround. I had never met you, never talked, and I receive, and I know you have a staff too that's like filtering through the messages, but like a day later, I receive a voice note from Top Dog, and it was the sweetest message. I was like, oh my God, we're going to be friends. He was like, Maria, and he was like so friendly. He's like, I don't do podcasts. I'm so sorry, but you know, I'm very familiar with your company, and you guys do great work. You're definitely one of the top SEO agencies, and it was like such a sweet no that I was like, okay, I like this person. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, let, letting you down nicely. But I also uh, do see the work that you do at the conferences. And I just told you off the camera, like, I think you're the best vendor at conferences in terms of like being involved, meeting people, promoting the brand that you represent. You do a great job. And uh, finally, I was like, you know what, Rhea, let let's do it. Um, so I gave you shit for a long time. So like after that, we became friends because I felt like he was such a genuinely like nice person. I was like, and I'm picky. I was like, we're going to be friends. So we became friends. And for like a year, there was like a running joke of me being mad at you because you wouldn't come on. And then once I just stopped bothering him, then he was like, we'll record at Lottie Gras. You know, it's funny. It's like I didn't have like huge rationale about it. And I knew you were going to Lottie Gras. And I was like, you know what? Now is as good a time as ever. So, uh. Let's get into it. I hope that if somebody's listening and they are a lawyer or a personal injury lawyer, more specifically, um, you know, I'm five years into this journey now, which is kind of crazy. That is nuts. You've grown so fucking much. Thank you so much. I feel like we're just figuring it out, um, but I have learned a lot along the way. And so I do want to be more intentional about sharing some things because I can get so competitive where I'm like, oh, I'm just, I want to win. You know, like you should see me on the pickleball court lately. I don't know if you've played any pickleball, but I'm obsessed. Uh, but I get competitive. And so, but here's, I think, a good opportunity where like, hopefully I can say something and maybe it'll resonate with somebody in a way that they actually take action and it makes a difference for their business. So I love that. So let's start at the beginning and kind of tell us how you got started quickly and, uh, Let's talk about a little bit about social and then we'll we'll move on. Cool. So so I was going to be a defense lawyer. They push you in law school to like the OCI track, um, like on campus interviews. You do the summer in advance and then you end up working for the big firm. And 
that would have been my destiny because that would have made my parents proud and um, would have sounded good at, you know, bars and stuff like that. Um, and I was actually going to do that, which is funny because I would have been so miserable. Like I'm not, I'm not built for that life. And uh, then I got into selling pay-per-click to lawyers. This is like my favorite part. Yeah. During my senior year of law school, like I was newly sober. So my social life was like, eh you know, not existed. My dating life not existed. So I was like, okay, um, I'll help Bill, who I went to high school with. Hauser, Bill which Hauser. I am not vouching for in any way. Yeah. So, so Bill and I were like, Hey, you know what? Like, he's like, you're a lawyer. I'm selling marketing to lawyers. Come help me out. And I will give Bill credit in the sense that Bill taught me a lot about entrepreneurship and it, op he opened my mind, just being around him, opened my mind to the, uh, possibility of entrepreneurship. I could say that. Yeah. Yeah. And the second thing is that, um, I also met mentors in the legal space. So basically I would send using like some, uh, spammy tool. Like now every lawyer gets this, but this was back in, you know, 2017, 2018, I would send an email for my Rutgers.edu email account. So tricky as a law student. And I would position it as like, Hey, let me get some mentorship slash. And I have something that could help you out. And I got a pretty decent response rate. And so then I would take the meetings, I would close the deals and unintentionally that lawyer would befriend me and I would get to learn a little bit about like, okay, what does a personal injury lawyer do? And then once that light bulb went off, it was like, oh my God, these people have much better lifestyles than the defense lawyers and they can make way, way more money. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. Where did you get this idea? Because basically, if someone's not familiar, you blew up on social media and you're just like probably one of the what top five people that do social media in terms of like a following and recognition and engagement. And I know you do a lot more than that now. Funny uh, story. I never had Instagram. Like my friends used to make fun of me because they were like, dude, you don't have an Instagram account. Like what? And this was, you know, 2019. I saw a bunch of um guys at my apartment complex in Philly that were not in legal or in other industries, but they were like selling courses. They were doing, they're using social media to make money. And I had decided to launch my own PI firm really with no money. I was right out of law school and I, that, that's crazy. Yeah. Like that takes some balls. So I did have, um, like probably 50,000 saved up. I like to say, because it's so true um, and I've never been under this financial stress since that I spent 183,000 before I made a dollar and I spent all the money in my bank account. I took out uh, a credit line. The most I could get at the time was like 21,000 and I got 50,000 from what amounted to like a loan shark at like some crazy double digit interest rate. Um, so I had to make it work. Like I put myself in a position where this had to be successful. And there was no plan B. Um, and social media was my way, especially in the beginning, to get my brand's name out there without the marketing budgets to compete in you know, Philadelphia, which is the market I started in, which you know it's a top five city in the US. It's really competitive. And um, particularly, I think, for anybody who's listening who's a PI law firm owner, um, it's hard to get that initial money to start because you know, five grand a month is your marketing budget isn't going to go too far. And was it scary? 
it, it was really scary. I, I will say, I think that I have a natural tolerance for risk that maybe some people don't have. Like, uh, even today I've reinvested pretty much every dollar I've made. And now we're, you know, leveraging with a uh, line of credit from our partners at Esquire bank and, uh, uh, you know, borrowing money from people, reinvesting in more cases. So, um, I do think that people have natural tolerances for risk. And I think I err on the side of like poker player, bet it all I'm type. The, I'm the complete opposite. Really? Yeah. Do you think that's a, like a nature or nurture thing? I think it's both. I definitely think females are less like they're more risk averse mm. for sure. I also will say like calling myself out a little bit. I was also like a 20 something year old guy that could like go move in with my parents if I needed to. Like I didn't have kids that were depending on me. Like it might be, have been a different calculus at the time if there were other people that depended on my income besides me. I had a mentor early on who said that he built his business largely in his 20s and early 30s and it really set him up to like parent in his late 30s and 40s. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, if I could do that, that would be, that would be awesome. I think a lot of men or just people in general, they don't become successful till later in life. I was 25 and- um, That's really young. Yeah, yeah. But wait, I have a question. Did it help you stay sober? So yeah, it gave me such a purpose. Um, I reached a point with my sobriety where like I was two years in. So like I got sober in 2016. Then I spent two years like going to meetings and speaking at rehabs and helping other people and really like, figuring out what my value system was. Um, and then I reached this point where I felt a little lost because I was like, I feel like I changed into the person I knew I could be, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life like just doing this. Like I need a mission. I need a purpose. I need something that's going to drive me forward. And uh, the first lawyer I saw that used the branded name is a guy who's still in Dallas today, Law Boss. And I remember I uh, saw their brand and I was like, this guy calls himself Law Boss. I'm like, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. And then I saw his billboards and his phone number was 1-800-LAW-BOSS. And now branded law firms have kind of become more common. But back then there really wasn't any. And so um, I was like, I need to do this. This is such a good idea. Like, I'm not going to just have a law firm with a bunch of last names. I'm going to brand it. And uh, at first I wanted to do the Philly law dogs, mm -hmm. which in retrospect, it would have like really pigeonholed me into just being in Philly, which would have been the big, biggest problem. I remember I went as far as uh, going to the local Verizon store and like trying to beg with the guy to give me like my Philly area code and then law dogs as the phone number. Um, and then I realized some lawyer from Florida owned the trademark. And then I, and then I almost licensed it from him. And then I found out wait, he wants all this money to license it and I'm never going to own it. And it was like, come up with something else and uh, came up with Top Dog and Top Dog's better, I think. So it, it worked out. I love it. Thank you. I like, I, to this day, I'm like, I, someone's like, James is coming. I'm like, it's Top Dog. Let's go. Like you call him Top Dog. I'm like, I do. <laughs> I really truly do. It took me a while to actually introduce myself as Top Dog though. Like, you don't know how weird that felt the first time, you know, where I'm like, nice to meet you and i'm like sticking out my hand i'm like top dog you know so, like like i do, so do, you that, do that now. yes i do so do, do you that. remember we were in phoenix and i was like can i just call you top dog 
And you're like, I would prefer it. And I was like, yeah. It's very, it's very situational though. Like obviously, you know, yeah. I'm not just going to go do that to random people. But if somebody knows me as Top Dog, um, then I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to roll with it. You know, Maybe just change your name. Yeah, legally. legally. Yeah, because your friends were selling courses, kind of utilizing the platform. You decided to utilize it. Yeah, so I went to Bali with this crew. It, it was largely uh, black entrepreneurs in Philly that I used to play basketball with. And these guys were killing it. I mean, making like hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. Um, and so I went to Bali with them and they were doing all different stuff. Like one guy was selling event spaces. One guy was doing resale, uh, like uh, wholesaling houses, excuse me. Um, somebody else was selling like lashes like he was a guy but he had like all these girls working for him and he was selling like lashes and they were doing business they were like transacting through their dms and i was like this is crazy and so they basically taught me um even one guy named runway he gave me the top dog gets you top dollar slogan on this trip um so it was like a, a super important trip looking back but it really gave me confidence that like there's money to be made on instagram lawyers are using all these traditional media channels but they're not using instagram to get clients and if i could get my instagram content in front of people in philly they would likely dm me because i also realized that at the time direct messaging and i think it still is is like almost equivalent to texting it's a it's a more frictionless way to reach out to somebody than calling a law office and sitting on hold with classical music and blah, blah. So that was really where I put all my focus on marketing was how can I build this Instagram account that has a large number of Philly followers? You know, I love DMs because I feel like it's not as intrusive, yet people are going to respond. I respond more to my DMs and text messages because for some weird reason, I feel like if somebody's texting me, it's like a little intrusive. So if I I don't feel as like, like I have to respond, but if it's a DM, I feel like it's more casual. So I feel like less triggered by it. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you also get past the gatekeeper. So if you're in some type of sales position, you know, a lot of times the owner is the person actually checking the DMs. And so if you're calling, you're never getting past the gatekeeper. If you're DMing, you might actually get your message to the person that you want to read it. So do you remember the first case you got from social? Yeah, I, I still remember. I could probably even give you like the timeline. I think it was June of 2019. And when did you start the social? I really started pushing it like May of 2019. I might be a little off, but it's something, no, yeah, but something like that. Yeah. You, you know what's crazy? I think what also really helps you is your age. Yeah, I was that. That's another thing that. It's like you're the cool lawyer. And I'm the only young one. Like, I mean, particularly in Philadelphia, like when at the time now there's more younger people but at the time it was all my competitors were like 65 70 year old men and i was in the beginning like i'm gonna be super me which is like very casual um i'm gonna talk like i talk i'm gonna make it um relatable that was my number one core value when we came up with our company core values it isn't actually today but at the time it was was relatable um, because I was like, I want the ideal client seeing my video to be like, this lawyer could be one of my friends. Because the insight that I had was that people don't necessarily always want like an expert 
you know, I think a lot of lawyers think that by showing off their verdicts or by, you know, writing a book that demonstrates their expertise, that that is what's going to convince the client to go with them. And maybe for some people it is, but for me, it was more, I'm going to get the people that just like me and just want to interact with me because they want to be friends with me. And in turn, I'll get their legal cases, not only from them, but I'll get their friends and their family too. You know which, what annoys me? Like the board certified. They're like, I'm board certified. I'm like, no one cares. Somebody has to be <laughs> somewhat very affluent. Whoa. Yeah. But they were going to find you anyways. But the, you know, cold lead that found you online or on social, like they're not sophisticated enough to know what that means. Like they think you'll take a divorce case. Like they, you know, so I totally agree with you. That was so important too, because, you know, you need the initial cases to fund the marketing as you keep going. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think my entire uh, business that I have today was built on the back of free Instagram leads. That's crazy. And we've had this since diversify it and grow it and all these other things. But without that initial momentum from the free Instagram leads, I don't know if I, I, the business ever would have worked, you know? Now, and I know I told you this off camera, but I, and it's funny because you mentioned it. You said I, I was going to be me on these videos. And as I've gotten to know you, I really think you come across so authentic in your videos. And I think that's part of your success. And I know this word gets thrown around so much and people, it's almost like saying woke, right? People get like, uh, yeah, okay, authentic. But there is something to it that I think people pick up on subconsciously that you are being real, right? Do you think that that played a fa like a, a factor in your success with social? I think 100% in the early days. I, I wanted to um, show who I was and be me above anything else. And I remember there was this idea of, I used to say the myth of professional reputation, um, that professional reputation isn't a thing. Like it's just totally made up. It's this false sense of self that people project because they think that's what other people want to hear. But in fact, we all have like BS meters. Like if you start talking differently than how you talk to me in person, like I'm like, okay, you like want to sound good or something, you know? And so I might've even erred like a little on the other side. I mean, obviously talking about the addiction stuff is real and raw and like what pretty recent at the time so that was something that was i think different for people to be like open about that but then also just this idea that even though i'm a lawyer um i'm not going to act how you think a lawyer is supposed to act like i'm going to be funny and goofy and uh myself and make videos that actually make you look at that video and be like a lawyer just made a skit doing that and that was attention grabbing in like a pink cow way because it was very different from how most people thought a lawyer should act. And so then they would share it with their friends or share it with their family or, you know, it would catch some type of traction. And you said that, yes, at the beginning, you felt like your videos were very authentic. But what about now? I think the problem as you scale is that I don't really get the time to put into every video. Um, it's like now 
we almost have a formula. You start to have a formula of what your content looks like and you start to have the algorithm uh, impact your decisions. You know, we track, you were showing me before we started, like, you know, followers. Like, we, we track every week in our weekly scorecard. Okay, how many followers do we have? How many, how many do you have? Uh, I think 273,000. How many calls do we get? So we have a- I would have thought you had way more. Really? So that's just on Instagram. So I have- uh, But you have TikTok too. Yeah, I have 75,000 on TikTok. Um, I have, um, I, I don't know what the numbers are for the other ones. Instagram is really still the one that I take the most personal. I've that's since I like. hired a marketing, co uh, not marketing company, marketing team. Like we have an in-house team of content creators and stuff that will help with some of the other platforms. Like I think we've built our Twitter up to 15,000 recently, which I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But what else are you, do are you doing? Because now it's not just social. Like social was like the platform that helped you get here. But what else are you doing now? Yeah, so we're huge on radio. Um, I really have gone all in on radio, um, which is kind of funny because I'm the social media guy. And so mm -hmm. people are like, radio? <laughs> yeah. It's in radio, but uh, you know, we do radio in a way that's different. Like I have this belief, no matter what the advertising medium is, that it's all about the content and 20% of the money that goes into the media buy should be focused on the, the creative aspect of the content and 80% should be on actually like paying for that radio spot or that television spot. And I think that the problem that most people make is they think that all the money should go into the spot. Like they put a ton of money on the actual like radio ad cost or the TV ad cost, but they put very little budget into the team and planning and special effects and voice of the actual ad that is going to make the substance of the content way better or way different than other people. And so with radio, um, we mostly advertise on urban radio and we've run uh, spots that are different than all the other lawyer spots. And, you know, we're going to get into TV at some point and I want to do the same thing then. Like I, you know, I've had this idea of running TikTok videos, but on TV, like just doing like every TV commercial of a lawyer is a guy standing in front of a bookshelf. How crazy is that mm -hmm. in 2023, you know? And so, um, you know, we've, we've scaled through the other mediums and, and hopefully we'll, we'll keep growing. We still do a lot of paid social media as well. So, you know, we, we still have the organic channels, but um, doing the paid social has for really- For a single event or for mass towards? Both. So I actually didn't believe that paid social worked for single event. Yeah, I, that, to this day, I don't think it works. Yeah, You're gonna have to yeah, convince so, me otherwise. Yeah, that was, um, that was my thought process. And um, I had a lot of success on torts, like whether that was Camp Lejeune or Hair Relaxer. We have some huge sexual abuse litigation where we have a bunch of different plaintiffs. Um, but more recently we've started doing it in single event. Um, and, uh, you know, the CPAs, um, are about equivalent as what we're seeing on radio and Google. Can you say what they are? You... I mean, I think I've heard you say on the podcast, like fifty you do 1500, you're doing a pretty good job. So, I mean, I think that, I think that's the, the goal. I mean, uh, for us, it's a grant. Yeah. I mean, on the SEO side. Okay. Yeah. So, so. But 1500 is great. And I'll ask, I'll ask you this. So when you do the grand, does that count the upfront months for SEO where 
you don't get any return? Is that factored in or is it a grand starting when it works? No, we don't. That's a great question. And we don't because eventually it's like going to even out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you go long enough. Yeah. yeah if yeah. you do. But there's a misconception that you're not going to see cases from SEO until a year or two years. Yeah. That's not how it works. You might not be dominating yeah. a year in, depending on your market or three months in, but you should be getting cases, right? We want to get it to the point, you know, and then maybe depending on the market, six to you know, 24 month mark where your cost per case at that point has gotten to a grand. Mm -hmm. Now it gets complicated because some people have really high thresholds. And so obviously they're not going to get, uh, that's not going to be their cost per case, right? But their average fee is going to be super high. But if we're just talking about a firm that will really take anything that is a case, there's like, you know, clear liability, you know, checks all the boxes. Maybe they only collect $15,000 in attorney's fees, but they took the case, settled it, right? We're looking at a grand a case. That makes sense. And and I've done my due diligence and your clients, I know, uh, rank, you know, on the map pack in a lot of the markets you're in. So uh, I'm not surprised by that, but uh, it is impressive. I do think um, just zooming out, there's definitely value still in attorney advertising. Like, right. That was one of the things that fascinated me as a law student as I got into it is like none of the lawyers advertised until the 80s like or 70s or whenever it was right for this long period of time there was zero attorney advertising and if you think about the firms even today that are successful with it um think of the morgan and morgan right it's really like a blitz strategy they're just doing more of it which i think there's still it's a closing arbitrage but i think there's still value in advertising for legal cases now the question becomes like okay how much value is it right so if you're paying fifteen hundred to acquire a case, but settling them for ten grand, any lawyer, any Wall Street analyst would be like, "Wait, you can spend fifteen hundred bucks to get a case, and in two to three years, you can make ten grand? I'll do that all day." Right. It's just we've been spoiled as the plaintiffs bar of these years where you know marketing was so so cheap, and the reality is it's not getting any cheaper. But there's still a lot of value to capture at some point, you know, it's going to cost you as much to get a case as you're going to make on the case. And that varies pretty widely depending on the market, too. So that's what one of the, markets are you in? Philadelphia was where we started. And the biggest mar new market we have is Chicago. I mean, we've done a ton of advertising in Chicago in the last year, and we're really trying to build it as big as we are in Philadelphia, where we're like the dominant player in the market. Um, and I think if it works, it's going to be largely successful. And we've gotten some really good early indications. And you do billboards as well, correct? Yeah. So in Chicago, we do urban radio. We do paid social. We do buses. We have 40 fully wrapped top dog buses. We've got 100 billboards. Um, so we're really pushing the throttle down um, there. And then we're in a bunch of other markets to different degrees, right? So um, some markets were just kind of testing. Some markets were doing just like one marketing channel. The funny thing about the internet is like this whole state thing is kind of just like a made up thing. You know, as much as I told you I wanted to get Philly Instagram followers, mm -hmm. I can't control whether they're from Philly or not. So you must be getting cases from everywhere. Exactly. So I had to figure out early on how to build that like national network, quote unquote, um, which was that's a fancy way of saying like me asking, hey, do we know any lawyer who does? But over time, you know, five years, 
we've now systematized it so that our partners in different states actually have intake systems. We have data on how long is a case going to take them? How much might it be worth? And um, I think some of the markets are either more or less competitive than others or the cases are worth more than others. I grew up in, you know, in Pennsylvania where that's a tort threshold state. So, you know, 50% of the more of the cases have to go into suit. Same with New York, same with New Jersey, same with Michigan. But then you look at like Georgia or Florida, you have these, you know, cases where you can settle on pre-suit for good money on like 80 or 90%. Well, guess what? Those markets are going to be competitive because everybody wants to do that, you know? Um, so I think it's just looking at each market individually. And what we do now is try to determine, you know, where can we get the best bang for our buck in terms of getting new cases, the cost to acquire them, but then ultimately uh, what percentage of them are going to fall off and what percentage are going to monetize. And then when they do monetize, what are they actually worth? So you're tracking a bunch of things because they're different partners. I assume you have different partners in every state. We recently rolled out like a B2B model where we're actually partnering with law firms and um, they're co-investing with us. Um, and so some markets we're doing that and then some markets it's just our money. But we're trying to have the best data where we can basically look at any given market and say, okay, what's our cost to acquire a case here? Of the cases we've generated, you know, break them down by the case types, but take car accidents, for example, say, okay, you know, out of the hundred car accidents in this state, you know, 60% of them are going to monetize for something. And then what's the mean fee on those? And one of the uh, things I love about this podcast is when Chad Dudley comes on, his episodes are so good, but it, he talks about like the thresholds of the partners. So like, you know, if you're doing between zero and 10,000 as kind of your gross fee, you kind of need some improvement. If you're between 10 to 15,000 average fee, you're doing pretty good. And if you're between 15 and 20, you're doing great. Something like that. So do you fire partners? Like, you're like, eh, this is not cutting it. I think firing's the wrong word, but we just decide not to allocate more cases there based on the data. So you fire them. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, it's, it's really been great because then we can just look at, okay, um, this firm, maybe they take, you know, 26 months on average, so just over two years because they're filing a lot of lawsuits, but um, they're getting an average fee of $20,000 and maybe we have a 50% interest and so our stake is worth $10,000. And if we can invest, you know, $1,500 to hold a like contingency fee interest in a case that's then worth $10,000 in 26 months, how do we keep doing that over and over again? Then do you factor in if a firm takes longer to settle the case, even if it settles for more, do you factor in that money that you would have reinvested if you had collected it quicker? Managing cash flow and duration risk is one of the hardest problems. It sounds really hard. It's not that different than what someone in like litigation finance or medical receivable finance does. Um, so basically, like if you know the lawsuit loan companies, they're doing this. They're extending money to the plaintiffs. They're ga gathering data from the attorneys of the clients that they're loaning the money to, and thinking, okay, how long does this case take to settle? And then obviously, we all know with litigation finance, they're making quite an interest rate. Um, but it's the same kind of tracking where it's 
capital intensive because you have to put in a lot of money to start. But assuming that you can kind of manage your cash flow so you have enough to operate your business, I mean, you know, we also were hiring nine new call center reps a month right now. So, you know, in house, in house. So there's that's a, crazy. Yeah. How many employees do you currently have? Uh, 38. But we, we used an external call center for a long time. And uh, I, I love your comments uh, on intake. So we could we could get into that. But uh, ba- basically, we finally were like, OK, we need to take the quality of the call center in-house um, and it's such a heavy operational lift, but we finally have a plan in place to do it. And we're doing it right now. You're a natural born salesperson. So I feel like intake would be like intuitively like right up your alley. Have you been involved with setting up that intake team or you hired someone and said, run with it? Well, I, I appreciate that. But I think the hardest part about intake is the operational side of it, which I'm actually not very good at. I, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like the good, I'm like the good charismatic leader that when it gets to the specifics of things, like really gets frustrated and is impatient. And um, I'm definitely a believer in like the strengths hypothesis where like I try to do the things that I'm good at. That's why I'm not litigating cases, right? Is I remember the days where I was getting the medical records myself and talking to every client myself and getting the billing and the insurance adjuster on the other side would be like, you haven't sent me the bills for the MRI facility. You know, and like all those little things would just drive me absolutely crazy. You know what's funny? We're homeschooling our kids. They have a private teacher. And one of the things that we focus on, because if you look at school in general, right, it's like, hey, you're really struggling in math. Like, let's get that up. And it's like throughout the, your whole time in school, it's like, you're not doing very well here. We have to like focus on that. But in the places you excel, nobody like bats an eye, right? And so we're kind of actually doing the inverse. Mm. We're like, hey, you're really good in math. So like, let's put a lot of energy and like really foster that. And be- and then I think it like spills over into when you have a job or run a business. It's like, I'm not very good at this thing, but you've been taught to kind of push, 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 push. And it's like, no, if you're not good at it, hire someone that's good at it. So I don't ever want my kids to go through that where they feel like, I need to do it all. Obviously, if they're like failing or something, you know, we need to address that. But I want to foster like what they excel in. I love that. I also think the reality of entrepreneurship too is when you're first starting, you are doing everything. And it's like, I feel in a lot of ways, like my life today, Maria, is so easy because I have people doing all the things I hate to do now. And it's like, it took a while to get to this point, but now I'm like, oh man, like my job is, you know, I get to look at our data and look at our finances and I get to come up with funny Instagram topics and I get to manage all of our important relationships and I get to lead our um, leadership team and marketing team meetings and get to like, you know, work with the team. And and um, when it comes to the actual like nuts and bolts of the processes and the actual training of new employees, I'm not involved at all. Oh, I hate that. And that's the, and that's the way it has to be. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I'm the same way. Like, I like the f- things that I find fun. But when it comes to like processes and like trainings and like all these things, I'm just not I'm just not made for it. So um, we we just hired um, Chris Collins, who's who's awesome. And and he is uh, doing our Salesforce build out. And so we're building out our own custom. We're not doing like Litify or Lead Docket or any of those things. Um, we're basically building our own platform. And um, a lot of it is field mapping. So it's basically like 
mapping all of our fields to our partner firm fields and where this is going to go here. And um, we'll have these meetings about it and I'll be like half asleep legitimately. And yet I know it's the most important thing to my company's growth, but I just still can't wrap my head around it. Um, and fortunately, like Chris was the best hire we could have ever made because he loves it. He's great at it. He gets new ideas about it and gets excited about it. Um, and so it's so important particularly as you grow and your organization grows to surround yourself with people in the areas that you don't enjoy and aren't good at. And that's exciting because if you can get your CRM or case management software working properly, it's very exciting. Yeah. Super. I just don't want to implement it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, because I hear um, too, like on the, on here, I hear your frustration with intake on the podcast Yes, and I totally get it. Because you should see me when I get a lead. I mean, we had our best, biggest quarter in terms of like some of our bigger settlements. Like we had a case settle for nine million and one for ten million. So we, we had some nice hits. That's yeah. really awesome. And you know what's Congrats. funny? There, the the biggest cases take the longest. So you know, those are literally my 2019, 2020 cases that are just now materializing in fees. When I see a lead that has that sort of potential come through, and then our partner firm or whoever can't reach it oh my gosh so go, you feel me i go ballistic i feel you i feel you the the hard part and we secret shop our partners too oh i yeah, love yeah it. We, and we don't tell them we don't ask we just do it and, and, and the hard part though is now that the tables are turning inward and you know we're going to be vetting thousands of leads per month and we're going to be secret shopping ourselves it's one of those things that's easy to criticize, but hard to do. Oh, know? yeah. If I had to go like fix someone's intake, yeah, I would be miserable. Yeah. I'd be good at it, but I think I'd be miserable. It's just it's a hard problem. It's like none of us got into the law to like want to run call centers. You know, like I wasn't like, hey, you know what I'd really love to do is like manage 30 people on the phone all day, you know. Yeah. But the problem is, is that what I find is that lawyers feel it's beneath them. And I'm like, OK, you do all these things to get more leads. But like you don't maximize your leads. So how is it beneath you? Or like there are no, and I get it. You know, we have our own intake problems, right? That like something will come through and like nobody called it on time and I'm annoyed. And it's like, so I get it. Like I'm definitely not judging. I just hope that when people listen, they really take it seriously. Well, you stress the importance of it, which I think is so true, which is that lawyers are losing millions of dollars in their call center and they don't even know it. And the thing about me and Top Dog Law is, you know, we're working with partner firms. We're not litigating cases. So I have to focus on being the best marketer I can be and running the best call center I can be. I don't have to focus on the paralegal pods and the litigation and discovery and what's going on in this case and disbursement and all these other problems. So, you know, I should be the best at running the intake center because that's my that's my business. And so it's like where I feel is for the lawyers that are trying to do everything. You know, It's really tough, especially the lawyers that are trial firms, but also do advertising, any form of advertising, whether digital or what I consider offline. So like TV, billboards, all that. That's really tough because it's hard to be really good at one thing. Mm. It's hard to be a really good trial lawyer. It's also really hard to run a law firm. So now we're asking this law firm, hey, you got to get both things right. Mm. Like you need to sign up these cases. And then you have to like do a really good job with the cases, right? And I feel like it's like 
a very different personality for both of those things. So you really either need like a managing partner that's really good on that end or like setting it up like the way you did, which is brilliant, or hiring the right staff. It's interesting when you look at the different legal models, right? So there's the firms like me that are that are marketing and lead gen. There's the pre-suit firms. There's the catastrophic firms that get most of their cases through attorney referrals. And you kind of wonder without knowing more, well, why doesn't one firm just do all of those things really well? Like, why can't you be the best marketer, run the best call center, settle a bunch of cases pre-lit, and then have an amazing trial team that does all your catastrophic injury cases. And what I think happens is that it's too much diversification of focus, right? It's like you can either be a great trial lawyer yourself and train other people to be great trial lawyers, but you really don't have anybody to do that like marketing business side, or you can do you can err on the side that I am where you're saying, okay, I'm going to punt on the whole being a great trial lawyer side, but I'm going to try to be really, really good at marketing and intake. And I think either one of those works pretty well. I think the problem that a lot of lawyers fall in is they try to do both and they end up doing neither. I totally agree. And this is why I love partnerships. Mm. So I know there's like so many solo firms and kudos to you, but I really think that when you have partnerships and each partner is in charge of one of these departments, that's where you can see that crazy growth where everything's being maximized, mm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, ma it makes sense. Like ideally if one partner was a great trial lawyer and the other was like a great business operator, that could, you could potentially like run the gamut. I've thought about, there was a period of time where I wanted to get into doing our own trial cases in just the top one or two percent of cases because if you think about it we're vetting through thousands of leads if you know if we're going to do any of them in-house why don't we just cherry pick like the seven and eight figure cases and just do it the, the problem is that there's nobody to to lead it right it's like trial lawyers want to work for great trial lawyers and once the trial lawyer gets great they're usually smart enough to be like huh i can just go do this on my own and get referrals from other attorneys. And so the economic incentives of keeping somebody in-house without being a great trial lawyer yourself is just really hard. Yeah, because if you think about it, if, even if you hired a great trial lawyer, the percentage you'd have to give them to keep them happy is the percentage that you just give the referral. So it's yeah. like, why, why even bother with that whole department and the support staff that they would need and just the headache, right? Yeah. Because it does take attention away. And like, we're not even touching on like finances and like all these other things that we're leaving out, right? We're just talking about two things right now. There are other things that come into play. I look at the trial lawyers and I think, oh, what if I could keep that whole fee on that $9 million or $10 million settlement? And then they look at me and say, what if I could originate those cases and didn't have to pay Top Dog his referral fee, right? And the reality is the system is aligned so that I and Top Dog is financially motivated to get the best cases and get them to the person that's going to maximize them for the most money, which in turn is going to benefit the client most. And that's why the whole system works. Now, I remember you telling me once that your parents were not happy about your maybe going off on your own and starting this in like Instagram account and all this. How do they feel now? <laughs> well, imagine you, uh, you know, you raised your child and they got this like 
big six-figure job offer and then they accepted it right before they were about to start they came to you and said hey you know what instead i'm gonna do my own law firm and i'm gonna call it top dog and i have no experience <laughs> i think my parents were just scared you know um and there was definitely an element as an only child of them wanting to control you know my stuff and uh what what's funny now is that uh my checks actually get deposited by my dad really yeah so so i managed like, to keep Fuck. him yeah i managed to i managed to keep him involved and um he he sends me new ideas that he has oh, for like bill yeah so it, it's been a it's been like a fun transition i think at some times there's part of me that wants to be like well like where were you when i was just starting out and like really needed like some positive reinforcement but then there's part of me that also looks back at my parents and I'm like, you know, if I had a kid do what I did, how would I feel about it? And like, particularly neither of my parents were business owners or whatever, you know, so they, they didn't know, you know, to them, if I would have made six figures straight out of law school, like that would have been more, you know, more money than they would have made their whole life. Like that was the dream, right? Like the idea that I could start my own business and it could grow into something that was successful and employed a bunch of other people, I think was just kind of beyond their realm of understanding. You know, when you ask people for advice, you really just get their own projections of their own issues. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's why it's key to have empathy and say, well, if I were in their shoes, how would they, how would I handle that situation? And the answer is always, well, you'd handle it the same exactly that they handle it. It's just very difficult sometimes to have that empathy when you feel like something is unfair or maybe you didn't feel, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you didn't feel supported, mm -hmm. right? You're like, hey, I'm about to go do this like big scary thing and like you're not being supported. It was really a coming of age moment because like I did that and then I also did an interview with the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, which was like the biggest paper in Philly and I talked about my addiction and all that stuff and my parents were still viewing that very much to the lens of like something they could or should have done differently as a parent that would have avoided me ending up in like drug rehab you know they were personalizing the parenting that led to that and i had done the work to know it had nothing to do with the, how they parented me um but i wanted to publicize that because it was important to me and i don't think they were on board with that so there was just all this friction at that time between like who i wanted to be and who they wanted me to be and um, we've really come to the other side of that. And uh, I I forgive them because I think that they were just scared and, you know. Did they wanted... apologize? Uh, no. Yeah, no. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It's like some things in life you just have to choose to say, this is what happened and like, I'm going to love you anyway. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a me forgiveness thing. But was there like at least a moment where they're like, I'm proud of you. Like, this is really cool. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like now I can tell when I spend time with them that they, um, they think like, like I just bought my first house and my mom was, like, I heard it sick. Yeah. It's pretty not sick. from me, from someone yeah, else. Oh, thanks, so yeah. my, it must my, be true. My mom, my mom was like, you know, I can't believe my son got this house. Like, you know, and, and it feels good. And I'm able to kind of spoil my parents a little bit and not not in any type of crazy way but like i have a cleaner that goes to my mom's house now and like that blows her mind right that somebody is coming to clean her house you know little things
couple things. One, I think we should throw a party during NTL at your house. Wow, just throwing that out just there. Just throwing huh? that out there. <laughs> if anybody agrees, please let us know. That's number one. Number two, if your parents didn't have a cleaner, right? It doesn't sound like they were wealthy when you when you were growing up. Yeah, I was an only child. So, you know, I did get a little only child spoil, um, which I, I think is an interesting topic for another time. I went, well, I just yeah. want to know, I guess, where I'm but, going but no, But no, I mean, my dad made like, you know, uh, a modest salary and my mom made, you know, $20 an hour. So enough to like have food, but they weren't business owners. They, you know. So where did your mindset come from? Like, what do you attribute it to? In some ways, I feel like I've always believed that I could achieve whatever I wanted. I've always felt special and I'll give my parents credit for making me feel that way. Like one early memory is like I won a poker tournament for like 1600 bucks when I was like 13 or something like that, which like just was a little odd and kind of like blew my parents' mind and I always um loved sports and you know did well in sports and I was in like the academically gifted program. So I I had this baseline confidence in myself and my ability to achieve when I went through the struggle of addiction, I really lost that. Um, and I lost sight of myself, but I think that self-esteem is built from keeping the promises you make to yourself. And what I found was after two years of getting back to keeping those little promises that I made to myself, that returned. Yeah. That return, that self-belief, that self-worth returned and doing the sell sales to the lawyers, um, of selling them, selling marketing to lawyers and getting those sales closed and making the money from that, like started to, again, give me confidence that like I could be a business person. Cause I always do tell people like a sales job is like entrepreneurship, like you're controlling your own income. So I believe that getting into sales as kind of a pathway to entrepreneurship is, is a really kind of natural way to go about it. I love what you said about keeping promises to yourself because I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately with like really stupid things. But like I said, I was going to take vitamin C. Like, why am I not keeping this promise that I made to myself? And it bothers you, right? It bothers me. It really bothers me. And I have a mindset coach and he was like, Maria, you have an issue with authority even when it's yourself. And I was like, whoa. All right, I got to think on that. It's like you want to rebel against, against yourself. Against myself, yeah. which is so stupid. Yeah, it's it's funny how those little things, like if, whether it's waking up or diet, like those were the those are the easy ones for me in the beginning. Was like to do the predictable physical stuff. You look great. Thank you so much. I I try. So do you. So do you. you your age is crazy. People, oh, right. Look, we're not so getting together. But pe people would. Uh, we're cutting. <laughs> cut that. <laughs> Sorry, Mariano. Cut it. No, uh, Marta won't care. Yeah, all right, all right. Well, no, no, Marta doesn't care. That's not why. Yeah, right. uh, you're aging me. All right. Sorry. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm 38. Just from, I'm just gonna from, tell you guys. <laughs> Cut. We're not cutting it. Now we're keeping. It. You got my face all flushed. I was feeling so good. Um, um ask the question again. I don't remember the question. <laughs> we're keeping this. This is. Wait, let's talk about really quick. I know we have to go because I have to go speak. But cold plunges. Uh, now we're getting into the good stuff. So I'm very into like the metrics around health. Which I think is kind of now gotten, is it like, it's so yeah, it's so popular. Especially I think when you have money. When we were chatting about it at first, I feel like it wasn't as yeah. popular. Now it's like every, it's like San Francisco and Austin and yeah. Scottsdale. So Top Dog kept 
trying to get me to go do a cold plunge with him in Phoenix. You were here for the conference. Yeah. I was like, you got to come to this place optimized. They play spiritual music. It's infrared saunas. The cold plunges are like 37. It's gnarly. I'm but sure. I, but I didn't but know hold your on, secret. Hold on. No. I didn't know your secret. <laughs> so I kept like, we didn't know each other that well. And even though I'm pretty blunt, I didn't, I was like, okay, I'm not even going to go there. So I just kind of avoided it. And then there was going to be another time that I was in Phoenix and you're like, we have to do a cold plunge. You're not getting out of it this time. And I was like, all right. I was like, top dog. That grosses me out because it's, <laughs> it's somebody keeps using that. Like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I love you, but I can't do it. And you were like, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you, you've almost swayed me on oh, that. Oh, God. I'm the, sorry. The, the only thing that I will say is I've thought about getting in at the house and there's like some element of when I go to that place specifically, the kind of people that it attracts there, they're kind of like hippies. They're a little bizarre. Like Arizona has its like Sedona spiritual. Yeah, like, I like that which, though. We've talked yeah, about this yeah. the energy there. Like I, it feels good. It's like a combination of people that are super interested in health and wellness, but then they're also like sort of hippies. Like, you know, they experiment with like psychedelics right. all the time, like all that sort of stuff. I and like that though. Yeah, it's. I like the perspective. It's like obviously very- You won't You won't do like- No, I, because no, of- The sobriety. Yeah. I've been sober for seven years. I feel like now because of my platform and like- you know, I just want to keep that word to myself. I don't want to do anything that's like even borderline, you know, with that. I don't want to always be hanging out with like achiever success money type people. And so I, I really like alternate perspectives. Because and, there's a negative yeah, side to that. Yeah. And I think you read a quote to me that I think it kind of pointed to that too. Like there can be this, I think, obsessive darkness that comes from like such a drive if you're not careful. Yeah, I was trying to find it, but the qu the quote was something like, um, super ambitious achievers have problems maintaining successful relationships. It was like the traits that make them successful are the same traits that make it difficult yeah. or something like that. And there's, de there's definitely elements of truth in that. Like, fortunately, I feel like I do have some mentors that- um, Can you name them or no? Are they in this space or no? In, in this space? Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think um, Todd at Lofty has been great um, in terms of like he runs an incredible business. He's taught me a lot about data and metrics and analytics. Um, and then he's also simultaneously like a great dad and um, like really prioritizes his time with his family. Um, I have other mentors that are like outside of the space that are in other businesses and um you get to see kind of the combination of like this person, you know, I want to be a nine figure entrepreneur. You know, I, I admire the people who are like nine figure entrepreneurs. It's like you hit the level of like you do seven figures and then you do eight figures. And you're like, I don't want to keep going just to make more money. I want to keep going because I want the challenge of proving to myself that I'm capable of doing this. And because I find the game fun. But do you ever worry that it's like, there's a negative connotation there? Like, you're not good enough, so you have to continue to prove to yourself that you are. Yeah, I, I mean, de I mean, definitely. I think there's certainly some of that in my like wiring. No, I have it too. That's yeah, why. I'm yeah, asking. yeah, and and um, I think that's definitely true. But I think you know, as long as you largely enjoy the game, like there's going to be times where you're going to be stressed, you're going to have an issue. But as long as like you're having fun. And you're not doing it to either get more stuff or fill a void or run away from the problem. You're doing it because you genuinely 
think it's a challenge and you want to see if you're capable of doing it, then there's nothing wrong with striving for more. I think where people get into trouble is when it comes to the expense of other more meaningful things in their life that um, they, you know, basically turned a blind eye towards because of this singular focus on the one thing. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a correlation or I, I like to see this thing where entrepreneurs are also really healthy, like physically and mentally, because I think that's how you can be the best entrepreneur. Like if you are eating shitty and not getting good sleep and not exercising, like how are you going to be the best entrepreneur? It's just measure. It's just the measurement of the stuff in the business and taking that to measure your own health and mental well-being. I mean, the, the thing that I've advocated the hardest about for 10 years because it literally saved my life was therapy, talk therapy. You know, it's still stigmatized for have guys. You, have you done EMDR? No, it's that. I, it's a talk therapy, but they also do this thing where they move their fingers or something and it like helps you clear trauma. I really want to do it. I see that that would my sober guidelines, I think, would permit me to do that. So that would be something that would be kind of fun. I, I just think as a guy in particular, like I did not grow up talking about my feelings like my feelings were like good, bad men don't cry type of attitude. And, uh, you know. I've it's not only helped me understand myself, but also to be an effective leader, you have to be able to talk about emotions with your direct reports. Absolutely. And if you have no experience speaking about your own feelings, how are you supposed to facilitate communication for other people that, you know, depend on you? Okay, one last thing. Let's get it. Do you believe in manifestation? Yes, absolutely. Do you think you're a good manifester? I think I'm a great manifester. You are, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I'm a great manifester. I, I think that you need to be careful on what you manifest. I think that there is such power in goals. I'll give you a, a quick quote. So this year, we um, were way off track of our annual goal. Good or bad? Bad. Like we started off the year and we were basically signing around the same number of cases as last year, despite spending quite a bit more money. And um, I really leaned into like, I don't care if the team is demoralized. We're not going to lower this goal. Like we're going to figure out a way to do this. And the last couple months, we're not only at the threshold that we were aiming for, but we're way higher and it's making up for all of our slow uh, development in the beginning of the year. And I really do believe if we would have lowered that goal, we wouldn't have been as resourceful because desperation creates resourcefulness. And that's what forced us to push through the plateau that we were at to get to that level. And this is why I love new months, new quarters, new years. Because I love the goal setting. I love Mondays. I just, I love the beginning of like, let's track this now. I know. I'm, I'm low key, very excited for 2024, like to start doing the planning. So we have uh, our, we do an offsite leadership retreat. That's two days for our annual. And then we go right into our full team. We're re fully remote, but we're having everybody fly to Atlanta and we have our event and I go over like the one year, two year, five year vision yeah. for the company and talk about like things that are in my sweet spot that. That is like, I, makes me so happy. We'll have to record again and talk all about that. I love it. Thank well, you thank so much you for having me. Thank you. Finally. Let's go. I'm not mad at you anymore. <laughs>
Thank you to Top Dog for everything he shared with us today. If you found the story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show.